Amen. Neglected, used, and forgotten. Neglected, used, and forgotten. Chances are that you have felt one of those words in your life. That there has been a moment where you felt like somebody was neglecting you. Or perhaps somebody was using you for what you had. Or that you were forgotten. Those three things have the potential to hurt us, to crush us, to bring us down in life. And yet I can't think of three words that better describes the story of Tamar. There might even be a chance that you've never heard her story before because it is a brief story that comes up in a single chapter in Scripture out of the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 38. And as you are turning there, I have a confession for you guys this week. I've, I've come with a lot of confessions lately, but this series has hit me hard, and I want to be candid with you guys about how God is, is convicting me and how I'm trying to respond to those convictions. Because here's the thing. It doesn't matter if I'm 15 years in my faith, 30 years in my faith, 50 years in my faith, and a pastor. God is always working on me through his sanctification process to make me a better person so that I can align myself even further with Christ. So the truth is, is that even though I planned for this week to be a week about Tamar, when I was actually working on the sermon and rereading Genesis 38, I struggled to pick this week's message. In fact, I even went in my preaching calendar and I etched out Tamar and then I wrote in Esther instead. Now, don't get me wrong, Esther's story is not a bed of roses herself, but there was this part of me that was like, well, people are more comfortable with Esther's story, and Tamar's story is very uncomfortable, what she had to go through. But as I was doing that, I felt convicted by the Holy Spirit because I realized in some ways that I was trying to, to soften this week's message. I was avoiding a passage of Scripture because it made me uncomfortable, and I didn't want to preach about something that made me uncomfortable because I figured if I'm uncomfortable, then you guys are going to be very uncomfortable. <laughs> now, I think I've written it in a way that hopefully will be easy to digest, but the spiritual lesson out of this confession that I'm giving to you guys is that we need to be okay with all of Scripture. Amen? 
that we can't just pick certain portions of Scripture and then leave out others. Unfortunately, that is a growing trend, especially within Christian progressivism and liberal forms of how people approach Scripture, where they'll pick out certain, per, certain portions and then leave out other portions because they don't like the stuff that causes them to convict them of their sin or their approach of life. But the truth is, is that if we are going to allow God to do his work in us, then we need to be okay with all of it, with opening all of our lives to him, as well as allowing scripture to do its work in us. So we're going to do that today. We're going to look at a tough story of Scripture that shows you the honesty of God's Word, and that even heroes of the faith have dark areas of their life that are not worthy of praise. So we're going to do that in Genesis chapter 38 as we look at the life of Tamar. So just really quick, a little bit of context for, for, for the book of Genesis and Tamar's life. As I said earlier, this happens before Moses. So we see Moses' story in the book of Exodus. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and it, what the word Genesis means is origin, source, beginning. That is what the word Genesis is, it means, and that's what it tries to communicate. The beginnings of life. It teaches that, that God was the creator out of nothing, creation ex nihilo in Latin, and that God brought life forth. Its purpose was to help the Hebrew people who had left Egypt understand who they were, whose they were, and how they ended up in slavery, and why God liberated them. And for us as readers in modern day, we look at the Genesis to understand creation, the fall, as well as the beginning of God instituting a plan for redemption. Tamar's story in Genesis chapter 38 is in an odd portion of Genesis. Specifically, it comes as an interruption to Joseph's story. So the same Joseph who was sold into slavery in Egypt, all of a sudden Genesis 38 and Tamar's story interrupts that narrative. And in this story is telling her life. So, just to be able to, 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 to give a little context of that, let's go ahead now and read Genesis 38.1. And I'll have the scripture for you up on the screen. It says this, at that time, Judah, so Judah is one of the sons of Israel, left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adalam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. 
She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, this is important for you guys to read in order for us to understand today's message. Gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. I didn't know that that could be a boy's name. I'm working on boys' names right now as my wife is pregnant, and we're not finding anything out, but I don't think it's going to be this one. (laughs) So what ends up happening is Judah, who is one of the 12 brothers of the 12 tribes of Israel, ends up falling in love with a girl, and then they end up having three children, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest being Ur, and then the youngest being Shelah. Now, if you didn't know this, to be able to have a boy was an important and celebrated aspect of their culture. It wasn't just important for the culture of the Hebrew Jewish people, but the surrounding people as well. And this tradition would continue all the way through to when you think of the, the English countries that and kingdoms about having a male. And because this male would typically represent the, the next heir to the line of a family. They would be given specific responsibilities to be able to continue his father's work and also the responsibility of being able to care for the whole entire family. So it was a wonderful blessing for a woman to be able to give birth to a male who would then be able to carry out these duties. Now that's not to say that that God in this culture didn't value women, but this was the specific role that a man would play in this this time of history. They would care for the family and shepherd and lead that family. So to be able to have three boys was really blessing upon blessing upon blessing multiplied. Because it, made, it meant that you were going to have a strong family with heirs and these boys to be able to, to carry on the lineage and the legacy of the family. So it's very likely that Judah would have felt incredibly proud over the fact that he had three boys, one after the other. But what ends up happening next would most likely change these perceptions and most likely change the way people thought about these types of things. You see, God had promised and God would work out a promise of there being a legacy that would lead up to the person of Jesus Christ. And it was going to come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and specifically from Jacob's descendant Judah. And through this line of Judah, God would bring out the person that we know today as Jesus. And that Jesus' role would be to be the Messiah and to grant forgiveness and reconciliation 
of the world. So this idea of a lineage would have been incredibly important. You see, I think at times in our lives, when things are going right, it's easy to celebrate. When things are going good, it's easy to to just be happy, but it's also easy to take things for granted. Typically, we we underappreciate the blessings that we have, right? And we, we tend to appreciate the blessings that we have when we actually lose them. So when someone maybe loses a loved one, if someone's especially in a situation, God forbid, where they lose a child, or maybe they lose their home, or or a source of income, or whatever it might be, you typically take time to reflect on that and appreciate what you have. But so often, we forget what we have when we have it. And in that neglect is when we, well, we oftentimes go astray. You know, I, I, I've had the privilege of being able to go on several missions trips throughout my life. And in 2018, I flew down to Haiti and I was leading a missions trip to Haiti with a school that I worked with out there to try to bring some renovations to this school. And I remember uh, we all jammed into this, this uh, DC-3 plane, which if, if, if you know what that is, that's an old plane from the 1930s, or if you've seen like DuckTales or something like that, there are no kids in the audience, but <laughs> that's the same plane that, that, that we went on and, and we went and traveled o- over to Haiti. And I remember we had to only travel around 120 miles or so, 150 miles, and it took 13 hours to do that. And, and, and if you would have seen the accommodations that we had and, and some of the poverty that we experienced, it was, it was, it was stunning in the worst possible way, possible way. It was just shocking to my senses. And I remember coming home and sleeping in my bed in my three, 400-count sheet it felt like a, a million count. <laughs> and everything just felt better. The warm water felt better. The water that I drank felt better. The food that I had felt better. The bed that I laid in felt better. The pillow that I put my head on felt better. But two weeks go by, and then all of a sudden, you know, you forget. We do that. And we need to take the time to think of our blessings and to appreciate our blessings, and especially if you have family in your life, to remind those family members, whether they're your own children, your brothers, sisters, or your parents, of how thankful you are for their their influence in your life. So Judah has these three boys, and in my opinion, he in some ways starts to lose track of how to raise these boys well. Because what ends up happening is one of the boys, Ur, the eldest boy, eventually Judah would set him up, his firstborn, with a wife named Tamar. Now, we don't know much about Tamar in Scripture, but we do know this. After marrying Ur, God would eventually strike him dead. 
Now, this sounds rather radical that God would do this, but the reason why God strikes him dead is because Ur, as we know from Scripture, was a terrible person. God's Word describes Ur as a wicked person, which most likely means that Ur was, was, was not only just living a bad life in his own life, but was probably a bad husband as well. So he was, for whatever reason, not living the way that God was calling him to live. And because of that, God strikes him dead. Now, I'm grateful that that hasn't yet happened in my life because I think about my life and, and I'm sure you could think about yours and think about some of the mistakes that you made. And God's mercy is abundant, but in this particular instance, the reason why God was so harsh with Ur, in my opinion, is because God was strong about making sure that Jesus would come. So in order to ensure that Jesus would come, what do you think he would have to do? He would have to go to great lengths to protect that family line. And if it meant taking somebody away, then he would have to do that. So I believe that that is the reason why God had to remove Ur from the equation. We know that God didn't kill Tamar, so at the very least, we understand that Tamar most likely was, was living a good life. Now, here's where the story takes a bit of the, a turn. So, if you didn't know this, it was within Jewish custom to be able to follow this law called the Levrate Law. The Levrate Law of Marriage came out of Deuteronomy 25, and I'll put that on the screen for you along with the title of it. And this was the law that they would have to follow. If, a, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her, and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Now, this is very different from how our culture operates. But again, you have to remember the, the spirit through which this law was created in this society. And the reason why this law was created was, again, to be able to offer a family legacy, to offer an heir for the family. So if a woman, if a, a man passed away, then the woman would oftentimes go uncared for. So one of the most compassionate things that God could do is, one, create a way for this woman to be taken care of by the family itself, and two, offer an, a continued heir for that family so that family's legacy can go on. So because of this law, it was important for Tamar to be married by the next brother, right? So who comes up next, if you remember from the brother list that I shared moments ago? Onan comes next. So Judah does exactly that. He marries off Onan 
to be married with Tamar because this law is a law of form of compassion for the widows. And, and as we read, read in the scripture reading earlier from James 1, we know that God believes that true religion is what? Taking care of widows and orphans. Because that is at the heartbeat of God. Because God is a good father and he cares about his children who are oftentimes in situations where they are alone and forgotten. And, un- and he wants to be able to take care of them through compassion. So this happens and Onan ends up marrying Tamar. But listen to what happens next in Genesis 38, 8. It says, Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duties to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So he didn't, so, so he didn't want to have a child with her. Because you see, what would happen is, is not only would this brother have to marry this, this woman, and it was by choice. But next, what would happen is, is the woman's firstborn would technically be considered the firstborn of the deceased brother. So in some ways, that firstborn, even though he would raise him as a father, would, would have the heir line of the deceased brother. So hopefully you're catching all of what I'm saying right now. So Onan sleeps with her, though, but figures out a way to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant. And I won't go into the details, but he does wicked things to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant. So what do you think that tells you? That tells you that he wants all the benefits of pleasure, but he wants what? None of the responsibility. We see that often in our own culture today, right? Where men will unfortunately enter into a relation with a woman, and he wants all of the pleasures that a woman might be able to bring into the relationship, but none of the responsibility. And one of the quickest ways you find that out is a woman getting pregnant. So women especially if you have influence of younger women in your life or if you have not yet entered into a relationship with a man, be weary of men that only desire you for what you can give them. And if, a, if you see in your relationship that, that your significant other is only wanting that relationship for what they can get from you, then that is permission to run. That is permission to leave that relationship if you're in a dating relationship with a, a, a man or even in reverse with a woman who is trying to pressure you for what they can get out of you. That is a sign that this person does not respect you and doesn't love you enough to understand what relationships should look like. Obviously, things get a little bit more complex if you're married already, but if you are dating somebody and you see this happening, that is not a good sign. That is a red flag that you should be aware of. So Onan is, is, is totally using her and abusing this relationship, and God takes notice of that, 
And as you can imagine, what do you think happens next? Right. God ends up taking Onan's life. Because you know what? The giver of life can also be the taker of life. So God ends up removing Onan out of the equation. So all of a sudden, three brothers, three strong sons, a blessing, 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 starts to look a little bit different, right? We start to see this family almost drop like flies. And now there's only one brother that is left to, to look over this family. I want to take a moment, though, and remind each of you of what love truly looks like. You see, I believe that we need to have a biblical understanding of love if we are to have good lives, especially lives in a married relationship. You know, I've had the privilege of being able to marry a few people through, you know, just being a pastor. And uh, I often jokingly say one of the reasons why I became a pastor is just so I can marry people because I love being invited to weddings. <laughs> and when I, one of the conditions that I have before marrying someone is that they would take premarital with me because I want them to understand that I'm not going to, to, to facilitate a wedding if I don't have the opportunity to know that both the husband and wife-to-be understand what I am calling them to and what I believe marriage constitutes. So I typically take them through a four-week class on what that looks like. It was an awkward thing to do that before I was married, <laughs> but God's word is still true, right? On one of the weeks... I'll have them read some scriptures. I usually have them read scriptures every week, but I specifically have them read this scripture from Ephesians 5.21. And I want to take some time to read it right now because I think it's good. Ephesians 5.21 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I could just preach on this all day long. Husbands, wives, what does that say right there? Submit to who? To one another. Typically, that verse 21 is ignored, and instead, verse 22 is what people get hung up on. So this whole section starts off with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then it goes specifically into what submission should look like between a wife and between a husband. This is so often misinterpreted, and it bugs me because it starts off with that. And then it moves on to the controversial verse that a lot of women in, or, or just, you know, neo-feminists within today's world don't like. And it says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also 
wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I want to be clear. This verse is oftentimes abused by an authoritarian husband who could use this verse as an ammunition for, to, 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 to have their wife submit to them. That is not what this verse is saying. So let's get that right. What this verse is calling wives to in this particular situation is a sense of respect, of being able to respect the relationship uh, with your husband so that you can approach marriage as a team. Now look what God calls the husband to do next, because you have to read both of them together in order to understand the whole. It says this, husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and did what? Read that with me. And gave himself up for her. Now I'll read the next part. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves what himself now, I'm going to preach for a second. Husbands, God is calling you, God is calling me to love my wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. Well, I don't know about you, but when I read my, my Bible and I read the endings of each one of the Gospels, I see a grand display of love, do I not? I mean, I see a radical love that is, that is incredible. The standard is so high. Christ gave up every single thing that he had, and he pushed himself and pushed himself and pushed himself to be able to display that great love for his church, the bride of Christ. So every single time we read the gospel message, we should be stricken and moved by God's great love for us. But what does that also mean? That means that husband, the way that you love your life, needs to emulate that kind of love for her. So you see, just as much as God is calling wives to respect and understand and love on their husbands, God is calling men to make the ultimate sacrifice daily for their, for their wives. I don't know about you, but I think that is beautiful. And oftentimes, when I'm in the middle of these sessions, and I'm telling the husband, and I'm calling them out, and I'm more, more than calling them out, I'm calling them up. And I'm saying, you need to be able to, to exhibit daily a sacrificial love for your wife. That means that when there is a moment where it, you, you can either bless her or bless yourself, you bless her. When there's a moment where you see her down and maybe you are up, you lift her up. You figure out in, in every single way possible on how you can continue to love and sacrifice and give your life up for your wife. 
And I remember I married somebody just a, a few months ago. And just before reading this scripture, the girl warned me. She said, I have to let you know I'm a strong feminist. And I said, well, don't worry. You know, I'm all for women as well. But we're going to read this scripture because it's in God's word and we're not going to neglect all portions of scripture. And I remember as I was charging this husband, her whole entire opinion over this just totally changed and a big smile came on her face because she got it. She understood what a man is called to. That is a biblical understanding, if you ask me, of what husbands and wives should look like. Now, moving back to this story, is Onan doing this? Did Ur do this? Not even in the slightest. Church, God's grace and forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. We see that in Scripture. But the big truth for today, the truth for today that I want you to be able to remember, and in some ways, if you forget everything else today, don't forget this, because it matters, is to take ownership over your sin. Take ownership over your sin. Now I say this because what happens next to Tamar is awful. What happens next to Tamar is Judah tells Tamar, don't worry, hun, I'll give you my next boy. Because he realizes that by God's law, he's obligated to do that as a form of compassion and to honor his legacy in order for the legacy to continue. But Judah just tells her that to buy time for himself. And he has no intention of giving his youngest son to Tamar. So he tells her and he sends her away and says, why don't you just go live with your dad? So to make it even worse, he literally removes her from his family, sends her back to her own family, and then lies to her by telling her, I'll give you my youngest son, but has no intent of doing that. Now you start to see probably how these boys went wrong, right? Which is why it's so important if you're a dad or you're a mom, to raise your children up in the way that they should go because they are looking at us. So instead of loving Tamar, he continues in the abuse over her and sends her away and has no plans to have Sheila marry him. Now, if you ask me, I think this is awful. And I think God thought it was awful. Because what this means is, 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 is Judah is putting his priorities above God's priorities. He's not only trying to manipulate the outcomes of his family's life, but he's also in some ways denying the opportunity for Jesus to come. Think about that. One of God's chosen people is 
is working against what Christ is trying to do, what God is trying to do. Now, I don't know about you, but that convicts me. Because that means that if this can happen to him, it can happen to me. That even though as a Christian, I can literally end up working against Christ and his kingdom. And this is why I often tell people, do not mix up preference for purity. Sometimes we let our preferences of how we think church needs to look like, how we think God needs to look like, get in the way of what God is actually trying to do. And we mistake those preferences for the purity of God. So what ends up happening next is awful. Tamar is living alone, living with her family, and she's honoring the system. She goes into a time of grieving, which was normal for their culture, and wears clothes that represent her grieving. But finally, she gets to a point where she realizes that Judah's not coming. And she wants to confront him about that and hopefully get to talk to Judah and talk about her family. So she takes off her clothes of grieving and puts on different clothes and puts a veil over herself and goes and speaks to Judah. But the problem is, is that when Judah sees her, he mistakes her for a harlot and doesn't even recognize her because she has a head covering on. And instead of talking to her and then sorting this out, what Judah does instead is he mistakes her for a prostitute and then solicits her services. So they end up sleeping together. And after they sleep together, Tamar steals his, his signature, his signet, which was most likely probably a signet on a necklace, not a ring, and a rod or staff that he would, he would have, and leaves. And time goes by, and Judah wants to find this harlot again, this prostitute again. And can't find her. So where do you think Onan got the, uh, uh, the user mentality from? Again, from dad. So finally, what ends up happening is Tamar gets pregnant. A few months go by, and word gets out that Tamar is, is with child. And what do you think Judah's first response is? Let's, let's help her. Let's get around her. Let's, let's figure out how to, 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 to rectify and deal with this situation. No. His first response is, let's kill her. <laughs> what a hypocrite. What a double standard. So what ends up happening is, is they end up taking Tamar and dragging her out. And the moment's about to come where... Things are going to get worse for her. So she's abused, she's neglected, she's abandoned, she's been tossed around from literally every single man in this family other than the youngest and has had a miserable life. And then all of a sudden, this is going to end with death. I can't think of a worse story for a woman. I mean, I'm sure there's some that exist, but this is, this is, this is up there of being totally abused physically and emotionally. And Tamar smartly brings out 
the, the, the cord, the seal, and the staff that he, she had took from him. And immediately Judah recognizes that it was his child now with her. And this is what he says. He says in Genesis 38, 26 on the screen, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to marry my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Church, my message is called unqualified, right? So how was Tamar unqualified? The truth is, I cheated this week. She wasn't. She was totally qualified. She was totally willing and able to do exactly what God was calling her to do and by her standards of the day, she could have done it. By our standards of today, she would have looked like a saint. And she was totally qualified. She remained faithful to each of her husbands. She fought to have an heir and provide a future for Judah and the line of Christ. The real unqualified person today was Judah and his sons. But here's the truth, that even though we are focusing on Tamar, the greater message today should allow you to recognize that God's grace was not just big enough for Tamar, who would eventually course correct this situation, but it was also big enough for Judah. And this story proves that even though you can be an awful father, who, who, who gave birth to awful sons. I mean, this is the same Judah that sold his brother into slavery, right? That God can still use you, redeem you, take the bad portions of your life, and make something good out of it. Now, that is not a rubber stamp of approval over what Judah did. We need to recognize that that was wrong and we don't want history to repeat itself in those kinds of ways. But God's grace was big enough to even work in the middle of these situations. How much more could God work in yours? How much more can God use you and work in and through you? Let's pray.